welcome to episode 83 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is Dr. Susie bird Golver. Now, Dr. Susie is the Director-in-Chief of the Warrior Research Institute. She's worked a ton with firefighters, uh, paramedics, police officers, and our veterans. Uh, she also works with the horses, the equestrian therapies, and she's been doing the telehealth stuff since before all this COVID stuff started. So with that, let's just bring her in. Here's Dr. Susie. All right. Good afternoon, Dr. Susie Bird Gulliver. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks. How are you doing, Jim? I'm, I'm well too. I'm, uh, I'm glad I still have a voice. I uh, just taught 12 <laughs> classes the last three days and uh, it's a little raspy. No, it sounds good. It good sounds enough. nice and clear. I kind of, I, For 12 I, I, classes, that's good. I feel like I got the base. Like I need to be part of the temptations or something. Now. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. All right. So let's just jump right in. Uh, let's talk about the Warrior Research Institute. Can you kind of explain to our listeners what that is all about? Sure. So the Warriors Research Institute is a little group of scientists in the belly button of Texas, in Waco, Texas. And we have a mission to help um, figure out the best treatments for people who chose careers that have a big load of toxic and traumatic exposure. And uh, so that usually falls into the trauma arena. It sometimes falls into um, the, uh, you know, poison exposure. It sometimes falls into sleep deprivation. But we're really interested as a research group in understanding how to treat people and get them well. Um, we're really interested in training the next generation of treatment providers, and we have a very big emphasis on. Um, making sure that we work effectively within the culture that we try to serve. So we work with veterans and veteran family members. We work with firefighters. Um, we work with um, uh, paramedics and EMTs. And, um, but, but most of our work is actually in fire service. Our most successful line of work has been in fire service thus far. And it, we work under the umbrella of Baylor Scott and White Health, um, which is the largest managed healthcare organization in Texas. Very nice. Now, when you're working with us, there's already a stigma with that, mm -hmm. right? With behavioral health. Would you mind talking about that a little bit and what you've experienced? Sure. Um, you know, it, so I'm an optimist by personality and probably by birth. Uh, and so I can't respond regarding stigma without starting at um, 20 plus years ago when I first started working with fire service and people would say that it was really, truly not a problem in your profession, that, that trauma didn't stick to any of you guys and you were all fine. Thank you very much. And you're a very nice lady, but we don't need you. Um, and so stigma has really diminished in the last two decades, really diminished. It's, it is still alive and well. We haven't killed stigma off yet, 
but it has gotten uh, much less hardy and much less visible. Um, so we had a project a few years ago called the Stamp Out Stigma Project. And um, we put out a, 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 a call through the IAFF to firefighters everywhere that um, anybody who had lived experience with a behavioral health issue that had recovered and was willing to tell their story, we needed them. And much to everyone's surprise, now this was four years ago, much to everyone's surprise, we got within 48 hours of that announcement, we got over 200 people saying, yeah, yeah, I've had trouble. And I've either privately or professionally gotten help and I'm better. And I'm willing to tell people about it in case it will help a brother or sister firefighter. And we screened those people very carefully and we ended up with 12 who had told their story on video and then we built a training around it. And we put that training out there through the IAFF. So some side notes about stigma. Um, you know, uh, the research that we did around that particular project showed us a couple of really interesting things. And one of them had been found in other populations, but it's, um, it's this, it's not the stigma about mental health for other people that's a problem. It's the stigma we have in our own selves against asking for help, our own self, that keeps people from going for care. Because that's that that's the biggest problem of stigma is that that there's effective treatment people won't use it because they keep telling themselves that that it doesn't affect them, or that they don't need need the help that they would judge they won't judge their brother or sister firefighter for asking for help, but they judge themselves for asking for help. And so that's the place that we're trying to, to move now is to get people to take a look inside and see, hey, is there anything in here I could use a hand with and reach out to a peer? Or if the peer, they reach out to a peer and the peer says, brother, <laughs> we, need, we need the big guns in on this one. Um, then they call an, you know, into something um, more professional. So um, it's been an incredible journey with the whole stigma movement from 20 plus years ago where, you know, maybe some of the guys have some alcohol problems, but nobody has a mental health condition, Dr. Gulliver, and yes, you're very nice, but go away, to, <laughs> hey, how can we get decent evidence-based help for people who are starting to have problems. How can we help them train against those problems so they remain resilient? And when people get to the, the train wreck phase where their problems are taking over their lives, how do we get them to evidence-based care? We have those things now in place. So we've really made tremendous progress and we still have room to grow. No, that was good. And, uh, and I, I'm thinking when you're describing firefighters and uh, how stubborn we can be and prideful, um, it's hard to get past that a lot of times. Yeah, um, you know, 
and again, this is in the context of history. When I first started to study to be a psychologist, we had this idea that personality couldn't move or change, that it was kind of hardwired in and written in stone. And we now have data that people's personalities can change. So isn't that great news, right? And the thing that the personality characteristic that might serve you well at 20 may not serve you well at 60. And so maybe you need to move that personality characteristic around. So, you know, pride in, in rookie school or pride in probie school may drive you to perform really well. I love being at academies and watching students really, you know, they work so hard at academy to master the thing that they're not potentially naturally good at, right? And, um, and, and that's driven by pride and stubbornness, right? But then maybe, maybe post back injury when you're 55 and you're looking at retirement in another few years, maybe you don't have to be the first guy. Maybe, maybe being prideful at that point is something you wanna let change. And maybe you take pride instead at letting the probie do the heavy lifting because you've moved your personality a little bit. And we know now that you can. And I'll tell my wife. Started, oh, okay. I won't tell her. I will keep that, you know, on the down low. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I wanted to ask you too. Um, I feel like, I feel like you were already in the future you knew this COVID stuff was coming because you were working on a lot of this telehealth stuff <laughs> before this is now, you know, just almost the norm. So mm -hmm. could you kind of touch on that as well? Sure. Sure. So, um, you know, the VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs out in, um, in the Pacific Islands and at their, um, their Hawaii branch and up in Alaska, um, they were the first group that demonstrated that telehealth was as effective because it's not feasible, right? It's not feasible to get evidence-based care on all those little islands. You can't staff with doctoral level people, all those little islands. So they actually did some demonstration projects um, over a decade ago uh, that said um, Telehealth is as good as face-to-face -face in my cushy little office um, that I'm very attached to <laughs> that costs a lot of money to keep open. Um, therapy. They showed that. And I didn't want to buy it because I'm a clinician and I actually do like face-to-face -face work and I like um, having people in my office and I like that they have a place outside their home where they can you know, feel safe and cared for. Um, but I thought to myself, I live in the state of Texas. We have vast distances between major metropolitan areas and people can't get to evidence-based care. They can't without huge hardship, you know, for some of our people in the state of Texas to get to an evidence-based care provider who's culturally sensitive would require an airplane Right. 
So I said, I'm going to put this VA idea to test. And th about three and a half years ago, we started our telehealth clinic um, for firefighters. We had already started a telehealth clinic just in our, our rural counties for, for veterans and veteran family members. And um, that first project showed pre-COVID really strong effect sizes. The people that we're treating in telehealth are getting meaningfully better and they're staying in treatment potentially better than they would stay in face-to-face -face treatment. And those treatment gains hold at a month. And we have data that show that it works. And so right now, um, we're actually moving forward post-COVID or mid-COVID, mid to end of COVID, we're moving forward to try to um, do full, full on bigger trials of telehealth. But we really had been doing telehealth and finding that it worked as well as face-to-face -face treatment um, before COVID hit. And then after COVID hit, we had this good fortune that we could, because of um, uh, HIPAA being um, waived in some ways and because of increasing um, ability to uh, flex those guidelines across state lines, we were able to expand the project to include all North American firefighters who were looking for telehealth during the time of COVID. We haven't analyzed those data yet and we're not done with COVID yet, so we're still enrolling people in that part, but we're going to look to see if, if the same treatment that we were giving pre-COVID is doing as well during COVID for our firefighters. And then we're looking to write more grants to be able to um, really focus the camera on what works best for firefighters in the telehealth environment. Um, so we, you know, unlike many people, when COVID hit, we were already doing what everybody was forced to do after COVID in the mental health arena. We were already doing that. We just picked up our laptop computers and went home a little over a year ago this week um, and continued to provide care um, and continued to provide assessment. And, uh, you know, uh, it's been very, very interesting. I will say that the people who have come in um, for care post-COVID, just general rule of thumb, um, they're coming in with slightly different themes than the people that came in pre-COVID. And the themes are along the lines of the great uncertainty, right? It, it's very interesting when we think about the pandemic um, being different from other disasters. Uh, for the individual firefighters and their families. But, but it is different. The pandemic has been very different than individual disasters or, or bad calls or you know, terrible events because, it's, um, because there's been so much uh, uncertainty um, and, and difference in leadership and policy not changing or changing. Um, in ways that that's disturbing for firefighters who are good at their jobs and now you know five years 10 years 15 years 20 years in they're they're up against things that they hadn't been up against before that aren't just the same or that don't have an SOP 
or that has an SOP that's out of date. So it's been, it is a different, it's a different group of people that we're seeing um, than the people we saw pre-COVID. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think that, I know HIPAA was an issue, a lot of insurance was an issue. Hoping that we're at the end of this COVID stuff. Do you believe this telehealth is, is going to continue to be there that, that we can show that um, it is a good thing, not just for you know us as firefighters, but just the general population? Oh, yeah. the, the science uh, is there now, the research that this is a no brainer. Yeah, yeah, the science is there and the clinicians who were tightly clinging to needing um, to not do telehealth have found that telehealth is, is fine for the vast majority of patients and as good as for some patients and better for other patients, right? Um, in the first year and a half of our access project, which was funded by FEMA, um, what our firefighters kept saying is there's no waiting room. We love it. There's no waiting room. And, uh, you know, our veterans and our veteran family members said, I don't have to get a babysitter. And uh, people who, uh, you know, are well known locally in small towns uh, feel a much greater assurance regarding confidentiality because their truck isn't in our parking lot. Oh, nobody wants to be seen in Dr. Susie's parking lot, right? Sure. Um, So, you know, all of those things make a big difference. That's huge. Well, let me talk to you about a different type of theory, a therapy. Let's talk about mm-hmm. the equestrian, the uh, uh, the horsies. The horsies. I know okay. you're a big fan of these, so. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're they're kind of my favorite species. Um, meaning no disrespect to my children or my dogs who are sleeping <laughs> on the couch over there. Um, so yeah, so you know, the problem with equestrian therapy is that not everybody can have it. And so that's really why we don't have a great big science base on it. We have a better science base on canine therapies, um, but but we don't have a good enough science base on equestrian therapies. So, you know, I, I'm an evidence-driven person and um, because of feasibility issues, I don't think we'll ever have really great definitive studies about equestrian therapy working except for kids with CP, we have a very good literature that it's effective for kids with CP. And we have a decent literature that it's effective um, for people with PTSD that have access to it. That's kind of growing, but that's not ever gonna get funded by the National Institute of Health, in my opinion. They've, they've funded some stuff, um, but, but getting a randomized controlled trial, the gold standard for for a therapeutic intervention is is gonna be tough because you can't have a bunch of horses, a bunch of therapy horses in Manhattan, right? Um, But that said, uh, the things that happen between species, around learning how to calm yourself, 
and learning how to manage symptoms because you're taking care of another creature who doesn't have language, right? Or doesn't have the same language as us. The things that happen for people who are troubled when they're working with another species are really phenomenal to watch. Really, really phenomenal to watch. And um, as a person who grew up with horses and spent a big chunk of time without horses uh, and then reunited with them uh, a little over 10 years ago, um, I won't live without them again. I won't. Um, in part because they ground me and they keep me um, interacting with them helps me be a better part of my species. It helps me um, shorthand, keep my head screwed on straight. Longhand, it helps me quiet myself and behave in scary situations um, better. And then that makes me better in my work life and better in my family life. So, um, so I don't have a great big science base to say that equestrian therapies are the way to go, but I do have a, a long observational um, database to tell you that if, if you have access to equestrian therapies, you should definitely think about it. And, um, and I have a personal database that says, you know, horses are, are therapeutic creatures to interact with. And if you can find a way to do it, do it. Can you kind of describe, like, I know you've been around horses, sounds mm -hmm. like for a long time, mm -hmm. but that interaction when, when you take that, that first responder or that veteran and that, that first time they meet that horse and how that whole thing goes, can you kind of describe that? Yeah, so, um, you know, horses are prey animals, right? And a prey animal, a prey animal will run away from a predator, right? Okay. And a horse weighs between, you know, a full-size horse weighs between 1,200 and 2,000 pounds, depending on how big they are. And human beings, nowhere near that, right? So right at the outset, when you approach, when you take a, a, a let's say a, a, a naive human to a naive prey animal, the prey animal runs away. And the naive human, especially if they've got a lot of issues about control and mastery, they may try and chase that 1200 pound animal or try and muscle that 1200 pound animal around, right? And the first thing that they have to figure out is that's not gonna work. That they have to approach it differently. That they have to get this prey animal to relax enough to be approached. And that that's not gonna be based on power or muscle, it's going to be based on brain and, and leadership. And so um, when, when you take someone who's, you know, driven by PTSD, who has, you know, 
um, a lot of trust issues themselves and you introduce them to a prey animal who's supposed to have trust issues, right? Because predators can kill them. So they're supposed to run away and they can start to make a bond. Um, a whole bunch of new learning happens and you just see, um, you know, horses really are very motivated to um, stay safe and to do the least amount of work poss possible. So with some, you know, joining up kinds of techniques, uh, a person who is really stressed out about their symptoms um, can learn how to get along with this other creature and it calms their, it decreases their blood pressure, it um, increases their sense of well-being. Symptoms drop away because they're focused on connecting with this other species. It's pretty magical stuff. It definitely sounds that way. I've heard absolutely great things. I haven't had the opportunity to do it quite yet or to see it in action. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Nice. Well, thank you for sharing all that. I, I do want to go to, now this was a twist I talked to you before we started the show. I have a list of 25 questions. Okay. They're all, they're all random. They're all fun. Okay. Um, I'm not going to make you do all 25. That's completely unrealistic, but I will ask you to pull out some random numbers and we'll go some over some of these and then I'll get you out of here. How does that sound? Sounds good to me. So if you would, please pick mm -hmm. a number. Uh, 7-11. Everybody picks seven, by the way. That, that's another thing you can probably analyze. But <laughs> what is something popular now, but everyone will look back at, at it five years from now and think it's dumb or embarrassing? Eyelashes. Eyelashes. All right. I, I think that's dumb right now. I don't even have to wait five years. <laughs> okay. Number 11. Who would play you in a movie regarding your life? Oh, my. Who would play me in a movie regarding my life? Uh... Drew Barrymore. Okay. I like that. I can see that. All right. Uh, how about another number? Another number? 30. Yeah. No, it's between 25, silly. Oh. Um, uh, another number. Um, 19. Do you have a special place you like to visit regularly? Kingfield, Maine. I've never been there. Could you describe that to me? Uh, population 615, right down the hill from Sugarloaf Ski Area on the Carabasset River. That sounds lovely. It is. It's really nice. I like the background, too, you have. She's got the whole uh, uh, beach palm tree thing going. <laughs> thanks it's a little bit better than my background 
I don't know. You look very prof- professional there. It's all an act. I'm not even wearing pants right now. <laughs> I won't stand up. Um, Please don't. <laughs> oh, it's okay. I'm just, I'm kidding. Uh, I know. I'll, I'll do some with you. How about, how, I'll pick some for you. How do you manage stress? My horses. Okay. I knew you were going to say that though. Yeah. Um, Chicago or great city, New York pizza, Chicago. Okay. Chicago or New York just to visit. Uh, Chicago. Okay. All right. Tell Frank Lito. I said that. <laughs> okay. But tell Danny DeGrice, I'll see him for pizza. <laughs> nice. I'm ne- I'm sure he knows some places. <laughs> All right. I'll do another, another food question. Um, Here's your choice. This is unlimited. So unlimited sushi or unlimited tacos for life. Oh, sushi, definitely. Okay. All right. And uh, I was born on Cape Cod. You know, I, you got to have, like, you got to have fresh fish. Nice. You, well, know. you should, absolutely. So. Um, you know, I'll be in California next week. And uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to some seafood. That's right. You know, That's it's, right. It's, it's not the same as uh, exotic Beaver Creek, Ohio. It's just Mm-mm. no ocean nearby. <laughs> no ocean nearby. No. Uh, I'll do one more. Let's see. I want to pick a good one. Um, all right. What product would you stockpile if you found out they weren't going to sell it anymore? See, that's a deep one. It is. It's a very deep one. Um, hmm. I, I, so actually, I know one because I have stockpiled it. Um, twinkle copper polish. For like your, your nails? No. Twinkle no. copper polish? Like- yeah. So, so. <laughs> I don't know what that is. You're going to have to. So, yeah. So copper, like copper clad pots to cook with. Oh, okay. They have copper on the bottom, which is, is, you know, um, but if you hang them in your kitchen, they have to be shiny. (laughs) They can't be all green and nasty looking. So you have to polish the bottoms of it, which is something we've done in my family across generations. We all cook with copper, copper bottomed pots and we polish them after every use and hang them up and twinkle copper polish is the best. <laughs> so can you say obsessive compulsive disorder? <laughs> I'm sure you know stuff about that. I do, I do, but just again, professionally has nothing to do with my family. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Now, for all my listeners out there, if they wanted to check out Warrior Research Institute, if they wanted to find more information about you, where would they do that? They should do it on the uh, link, which you would think that I would know by heart, but I don't. It's it's the WRI dot something or other. Um, so, Jim, you're going to have to like plug that back in for me. I'm sorry. I I. It's I, okay. I don't know the the link. Um, but you can I'll put it in there for you. 
please, please do that. Um, it, it's, uh, I don't know it by heart. It's okay. I don't Google myself and I don't look at my, my own website. It's, it's. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. Well, I'm sure marketing people would scold me for it, but. Um, we won't tell them. It's a, don't tell the marketing people, please. Uh -uh. I won't tell the marketing people if you don't tell my wife about about being able to change and how easily you could change your stubborn nature. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, I'll make that deal with you. Is it's that a fair? deal. It's a deal. We shake. We shake. We pinky square. Swear. All right. So, with that, thank you so much. I will. I will sure. get you out of here. Thank you for just okay. all the work you've done with first responders, yeah. with our military personnel. And I know all the work that you'll continue to do. So thank you. Thank you, Doc, Dr. Pleasure. Susie. Have a good afternoon. You too. Take good care. Be safe out there.